0: Good afternoon. This is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Sunday the 7th of March. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwar Michael, how have you been?
1: Wonderful, Gary. Just wonderful.
0: Well, it's wonderful to hear you've been wonderful and I hope that the listener has also been wonderful since we last talked. I do have to thank all of you who reached out to us with the answer to the question we asked in the previous episode of which one of us is the profanity driven one and which one of us is the one with the fake posh accent i've reviewed your answers the general consensus michael was that i am in fact both of those people
1: i don't know how that may i I, do i feel excluded by that or ignored or am i mildly relieved or am i fundamentally
0: some people did say that you had the fake posh accent um but i also did get many votes for both positions So I'll just take the podium myself.
1: I think you should take the podium on. Take first and second, place.
0: My personal favourite response, by the way, was a listener who wrote to say that I was absolutely the foul-mouthed one and that she didn't mind it. Uh, Every curse I use, her child has learned it. And now her husband is starting to complain. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, finally, I'm radicalising the young.
1: I am shocked I tell you shocked to hear that children are being exposed to this kind of dirt and filth I I think that that woman needs to take a good hard look at herself she'd be better off sitting down now with that child and saying the rosary instead of listening to this nonsense
0: I don't know I think children need to know these things like the gold standard children need to know about the gold standard
1: you know, for a second there, I thought, the gold standard of what? Okay, so yeah, they need to know about the gold standard.
0: And where else, where else, Michael, are you going to find programming dedicated to telling children about the gold standard?
1: Nowhere else, and I hope to God not here.
0: No, I was going to say absolutely nowhere. I don't know where you'd find something like that. Clearly, there's a a gap in the podcast market, as difficult as that is to believe. Anyway, so let's let's start on. To start with, I actually wanted to touch on a topic we talked about, on uh, Friday, which is the, um, there was a report, I'm not, actually I'm not going to say it was a report, there was an infographic released by a crowd called Moonshot, and um, it was talking about the, the interests of the far right in Ireland, and it was, wasn't good. I don't think we were kind to it, Michael. No. No, but I found out today that uh, the CEO, and or well, sorry, the founder of Moonshot heard the podcast and um, wasn't happy, Michael. Was not happy at all.
1: Well, I'm disappointed to hear that. I mean, we like to make people happy. It's kind of our raison d'etre, make them happy. And
0: Michael, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all.
1: Well, that's absolutely, that's my motto in life,
0: Kerry. That's going to be, when the show retires, that's the statement I'm going to put up.
1: Somebody, shall we say, a prominent and long-lived member of the left, uh, political establishment in the United Kingdom, died some time ago. And I was asked for my opinion. Somebody was poking me on Facebook and I said, my response was, De mortis nil nisi bonum. If you can't say something good, say nothing at all.
0: I've always preferred speak ill of the dead. <laughs> I
1: can believe you. They can't sue you. That One of the many, many good things about the dead.
0: But anyway, he came, he turned up complaining to John McGurk, the editor of Gript, that um, we had downplayed people downloading songs popularized by the Christchurch terrorist a man who massacred 50 people and we were saying it's a meme as if that makes it okay and would we be just as chilled about it if the clanging of the swords was popular in Ireland
1: No, no, Gary just not to be that guy but you said we were saying it was a meme it would be more accurate to say you were telling me that that was a meme because I don't live in the kinds of places that I would be in a position to discover that, that was a meme I live in a very sheltered life. So you're telling me this and I was accepting it because I believe everything you tell me.
0: Now that, that tweet has a wonderful concentration of nonsense. It was one of the most popular memes in the world before the Christchurch shooting. The Christchurch shooter did play it when he was in the car driving to the mosque when that was obviously live streamed. But to say it was popularized by the Christchurch terrorist I think is, is absolutely incorrect. And then he said clanging of the swords... Clanging of the swords is nothing, Michael. Clashing of the swords was Isis's anthem. And if you're curious, there is a fantastic dance remix of it on YouTube. And no, I'm not joking. It's there. And it's glorious.
1: I preferred the dance remix to the... You sent me the drill remix as well. I preferred the disco. It was a kind of like an Italian sound, like a, you know, a a
0: Rimini beat. Then he goes on to tell John that there was a 10 to 15 minute segment on his work. The presenter, in quotation marks, spent time explaining that there was nothing wrong with the song and it was simply a harmless Chan meme, neglecting to mention that it was popularised because the Christchurch killer played it while killing innocent people, and that's despite the fact his press team told me by email when I asked him for info. They hadn't gotten back to me by the time of the podcast, obviously because I say I'm waiting for their response in the podcast. So, not a very good listener. But again, also wasn't popularized by the Christchurch killer or if there was an uptick in popularity it is not the main surge of its popularity videos of this thing had millions of views before this event you are picky 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 aren't you well i think if you're gonna say this is the issue and it's not the issue i think i should point that out and um then he says my his my press team told him but that was the case. And his press team did, in fact, tell me that was the case before they stopped responding to my messages, presumably after listening to the podcast.
1: I love the idea that he has a press team. I'd love a press team, wouldn't you? I, I'm picturing, like, you know those old black and white movies set in in, in, a, in a newspaper office where you have all these desks and there are typewriters and old hacks chewing cigars and hats Clanky away type as a press team. I want a press team. When are we going to get a press team?
0: He was right. His press team did get back to me and say that it was one of the top searches in Ireland and that it was a Serbian nationalist song popularised by the perpetrator of the Christchurch massacre. To which I would make two points: one, telling me that that's the case doesn't mean it's the case, and two, because he was basically saying we had presented something without context. Not pointing out to anyone who might read your newsletter or, you know, the press people that you sent this to, that this was in fact massively popular before that point would also seem pretty misleading. Almost as if you wanted to, you know, misinform people, Michael, as to the popularity of that so you could present an inflated picture which would of course reflect well on you. And uh, anyway, I just went on to tell him that the fact I stood by everything I said, I thought his work was useless. And low quality, and the fact he'd come back to me, talking about a song, as if he was um, Tipper Gore, as opposed <laughs> to the sort of various fundamental methodological issues with his work I highlighted, means I don't really see any need to uh, review that decision.
1: Tipper Gore, really? Way to keep it contemporary.
0: I know. I'm. I'm the cutting edge, Michael. Yeah.
1: Uh... That's 20 years, 21 years ago, Tipper Gore, now isn't it? Anyway, listen, next time, I don't, who's, who's funding us at the moment? Is it UKIP or the remaining Koch brother? or Who is it? Anyway, whenever you're at the next meeting of the Irish far right fund, funding thing, could you ask them? Could they stump up for a press team? Cause, and just tell them, cause I felt like, I think it would really make an impact.
0: So anyway, since since we were talking about someone and that person responded, I thought we should mention that that person responded, given that he is the founder of an entity which is apparently involved in the analysis of extremists. I uh, I did reach out to his press team, by the way, Michael, and asked could I have the um, the report it's based on the infographic? Yes. And Michael, they sent me the infographic. <laughs> it makes me think that actually. There isn't a report this is based on, and the Irish Times and the Irish Examiner got quite a bit of leeway of an infographic with a couple of hundred words at most on it, and absolutely no details. Because, Michael, why would you want to ask someone about, you know, numbers or stats or what exactly is happening here?
1: What is it was that you were actually measuring?
0: I mean, obviously, the Irish Times, the person who covered it was Conor Gallagher, so... Like, There was not going to be a lot of questions about, you know, is your methodology sound? There was going to be a a sort of, what terrible things can you tell me, and how are the far right involved?
1: Bit of a dig there, a bit of a dig at Connor, I don't like that.
0: I have, I do not know Connor at all, he could be perfectly lovely. I don't generally read much crime reporting, it's just not terribly of interest to me. But Connor writes quite a lot on security more generally, but when he does he tends to focus on the far right, and... He's not very good at it, frankly. No, no, Gary, it's not an easy
1: job. I mean, if you write about security threats in Ireland and you have to write about the far right, it's going to be a little bit like being a diamond prospector in South Tipperary. There's not a lot. You can dig and dig and dig. You're not going to get a whole lot of joy unless you happen to be digging in a jewellery shop.
0: No, I mean, generally, when I hear an Irish reporter or an Irish group talking about the far right, I do have a bit of, okay. well, how bad is this going to be? Having said that, John Mooney apparently did, who is with the Sunday Times, did a podcast, I think, on the far right in Ireland, and I haven't heard it yet. But John Mooney is generally pretty solid, so I wouldn't have the immediate sort of, oh God, as I would when, you know, Connor writes something, because Jesus Christ, Michael. I mean, I'll give you an example of Connor's high quality of analysis. Okay. David Quinn sent out a tweet the other day and it said the real conspiracy theory is the one being fueled by the media of a far right threat to irish democracy and connor went on this fucking rampage about how figures like quinn and the youth defense guy which actually we should mention like to claim there's no far right here and you look at it and you're like connor there's literally a text of what he said below what you're typing and that's not what he said.
1: This was a tweet. He tweeted this, didn't he? And he, 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 he had retweeted the, the David Quinn
0: quote. Yes. So, like, he, he he would have had to look at it as he was writing that David Quinn had said, "There's no fair right here." So, I mean, that's the level of comprehension here. Like, you're not. We wouldn't lose a cancer cure, Michael.
1: <laughs> well, you know,
0: different magisteriums.
1: People have different talents. You know, maybe, maybe if he went into. Or biochemistry or oncology might discover that actually he was
0: very good at it. Now, but there's the thing. He says Ute Defence Guy. Now, Ute Defence Guy refers to John McGurk, who's the editor of GRIPT. John McGurk has never worked for Ute Defence. However, it is a common claim amongst the more conspiratorial elements of the regressive left. And since John McGurk showed up in primetime, there's been an increased focus on trying to tear him down they've been bringing up stuff like um, a credit union default that he had when he was younger uh, stuff like that just stuff to bring up to make him look bad so but that's absolutely untrue so Connor Gallagher is repeating le- regressive left far left disinformation because these are the people he talks to and then he turns around and sort of goes well other people are claiming things and he's like, perhaps you may want to examine exactly who is telling you things first, Connor. I saw people saying that they'd been talking to him and that he'd reached out to them for information and for briefing on areas. People with very particular political slants, Michael. People who are well outside the general kind of like soft left. People who I've absolutely seen uh, sucked people. But uh, that seems to be his evidence base. Yeah... The Irish right is certainly getting a
1: good gallop these days. I mean, they've always been fascinated by it, and there's been always this I mean, desire to find that oh, what would you call it, sort of that ticking time bomb, which would show that we were on the cusp of some kind of core mutiny all over again. Now oh, it's there's, there's this deep spread. I mean, it was it was different in the past. It used to be Opus Day was part of it, or the there was a Catholic conspiracy in the ministry, in the ministry for education. One of my favourites, which we, were never, we never got to, to find out what it was, was was it um, Pat Rabbit stood up in the dawn and said he had he had information that was going to shake the very foundations of the state. I think that was Pat Rabbit, wasn't it? And I always thought these novelties, awful tease, isn't he? I mean, you can't tell someone that and go on for thirty years keeping it secret. Right? If you're going to keep it secret then don't tell anybody. You don't be a tease about it.
0: I've never wanted to think of the words pat rabbit and tease in the same sentence before Michael. And I'm not grateful that you made me.
1: Anyway, listen we're, we've been talking about this bef- we talked about this before. My only comment generally the reason I reference the matter thing is because in the, there's it's it's another example of this discussion about the far right. And this it's a very it seems on the face of it was a a funny kind of a an ad hominem attack on anybody who is involved in critiquing uh, government policy towards the pandemic and the lockdown policy and so on, as if you can just axiomatically say if somebody is opposed to the lockdown and opposed to the mask, well then they are crazy left, crazy right wing loonies and they represent a threat, both a threat to the body politic and to the health, the physical health of the nation. Therefore, they have to be What was the phrase, Gary, you came across? Swiped off the... what?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Yes, our our wonderful new NGO dedicated to anti-fascism work. What is it? Lekela. Lakayla. They retweeted something saying, we can sit around and complain about this, or we can oppose to stop them. We need to gather our forces now and sweep them off the streets when the time comes. And then he said, get involved with Lakayla. So we have a a Lakayla, which is... I'm not sure if they're state funded or if the people, the member of the organizations which compose it are state funded, but I'm sure there's state money there somewhere saying that, um, you know, gather the forces, sweep them off the street. And I do, Michael, by the way, enjoy a good left wing, let's sweep the fascists off the street before they can rise approach.
1: I think you have to be a little bit irony deficient if you're a fa- an anti-fascist group and to support, to use language like sweeping these people, sweeping them off the street. There people. We actually have we have a constitutional right to, to protest. You know, there's a right to public assembly. Uh, and you're going to sweep them off the street. Gather our forces and sweep them off the street. I would suggest hesitantly. That if a group from the other end of the axis had said something like that, people would read into that language a threat of violence and a tone that is militaristic.
0: I mean, particularly if they had also retweeted something saying the last few days have shown we cannot depend upon the media or the state to prevent the growth of our enemies. Neither the guard, the, the courts, the panel shows, nor the ballot box will need them. We need a mass movement. And then you start talking about sweeping people off the streets. I feel if, let's say, the Irish Freedom Party or anyone on the right did that, I feel that might be seen as problematic, Michael. The ballot box is not sufficient. The ballot box is not the sufficient. The police are not sufficient. The courts are not sufficient. So, Well, you could say at
1: the very least this is a call for direct action.
0: I've always It's one of those things I've always loved when people bring up the paradox of toleration and say that, well, you see, if if we tolerated those who are intolerant, then eventually they would win and there would be no toleration. So instead, we need to not tolerate them and drive them away. And you sort of go, right, right. Because it, it kind of sounds like you're talking about preemptive intolerance, which will mean you're then the intolerant ones, and we, by your logic, should get rid of you. And that doesn't... Is that is that what you're going with here? Or is it sort of no, no? We have to trust you to be the people who decide when violence is appropriate to protect tolerance. Because having met some of these people, Michael, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't trust them to commit violence, let alone decide who they should uh, who they should use it on. I mean, half of these people, if they tried to use a gun, would shoot themselves in the head.
1: I have, I suspect we're going to be hearing more of this stuff, and you know. Uh... If they do enough of it and if they react in the right way and they keep reacting in the right way, they keep demonizing people and they start to actually shut down debates and discourse that should be had, then I think the reality is that they may they may be as we speak creating the soil conditions necessary to grow a little bit of a far right in this country
0: they might be smart, but they're not wise and if we were to assume wisdom as intelligence, these people, or many of them, are thick enough that you could use them as a very sturdy construction material. Like, stuff like, let's, let's go back to Mr. Gallagher for a second, Michael. Mr. Gallagher said, um, someone said, look, you're just trying to dismiss opinions here, when he was talking about uh, Quinn. And he said, I like to dismiss racist opinions as far right, yes. Michael, you, you've, you've got a fairly good handle on left-wing movements throughout history. How many of them would you say were virulently racist, incredibly nationalistic, and very happy to shoot people in order to keep things a very particular way?
1: On Off the top of my head? Well, okay, let's start with number one. Obviously, Cambodia Pol Pot
0: was absolutely virulently nationalist. I mean, you say that, but Pol Pot himself, Michael, said that mistakes were made. So he actually said several thousand mistakes may have been made as opposed to the um, three million mistakes that were?
1: Yeah, eggs, omelettes, scary. Vietnam, uh, the boat people uh, were ethnic Chinese who were driven out to Vietnam because of uh, uh, hostility with ethnic Chinese. China, well, no, China is fine. There are no ethnic problems in China. China has an impeccable, historically impeccable, and currently impeccable uh, human rights record when it comes to, to ethnic minorities and religious minorities in China. And I think you'd like to agree with me on that, wouldn't you?
0: Absolutely, Michael. I would not uh, not at any point like to say anything contrary to that, because the Chinese take offence easily. Or at least, the more exactly, the Communist Party of China takes offence easily.
1: Russia uh, Russia was famous. Uh, Stalin managed to get to the top of the, the tree, even though he was a Georgian. But Russia imposed, I mean, he was famous for basically it was a Russian mafia that ran the Soviet Soviet Republic. I mean, Konstantin Gurdjieff, because the Russians, much like our friends in the left today, believe in the inheritability of sin. If you were bourgeois three generations ago, you're bourgeois now. Uh, Of course, Gurdjieff used to talk about the fact that he was never going to become an officer in the army. He could never get into university because his family were originally Polish. I think his Great grand, his grandparents, his great grandparents had been Polish, and therefore he was ruled out, and that would have been a, a fairly standard experience uh, throughout the thing. No, I, I, the, um, what you could say, Gary, is that in the formulation of the theoretical constructs that go into the left, the. Enemy is not usually formulated initially as an ethnic or racial group, but rather as a group within the society, which is group, people what have money or people what have uh, made businesses.
0: The exploiters.
1: The exploiters, the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, the aristocrats.
0: Power is gained, it tends to go to parasite, because that's dehumanising. And then actually the end point is quite difficult to... Um to tell apart from more right-wing approaches oh yeah, absolutely it's actually it's funny when you say
1: parasite you remind me uh because that was the language that was used particularly in Stalin's time about a number of groups but one group that definitely got it heavily in the neck uh, in Soviet Russia were Soviet uh, Jews and after there was there are serious historians who, who are who who believe really that Reasonable evidence suggests that Stalin, just not long before he died, was getting ready to ramp up another go of persecutions in Russia, but this time it was going to be a pogrom against Jewish so uh, Jewish citizens of the Soviet Union, and that he was going to engage in a fairly heavy persecution of of Soviet Jews. The doctors' plot. The Doctor's plot. Well, of course, a number of a number of the, the Doctors would have been Jewish and that was part of that. There was a kind of a sense of... For anybody who hasn't seen it, Gary didn't think much of it. I thought it was very funny. was the, the death of Stalin. And because of the Doctor's plot, when Stalin dies, they have to go and get the Doctors that are still left alive in Moscow. And it's not a very impressive bunch. It, that's, I think, one of the funnier moments in the film.
0: So just, just for those who aren't aware of it, the Doctor's plot was... Um, Stalin basically decided he wanted to clear house a little bit and purge the communist party and well in doing that there was um there was a little bit of i think exuberance michael i think we would say and then people started throwing uh, around things about the threats of zionism Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. those people with jewish names and a lot of people were using words like vermin and they we're talking about a, a plot from the Jewish community, sorry, the Zionist community, very important distinction, uh, to assassinate Soviet leaders and to, you know, destroy the progress they'd made. And a, a lot of Jews just ended up being, um, well, they decided to peacefully leave the country, Michael, and definitely weren't disappeared, tortured, shot and dumped somewhere.
1: They, they, they did the same thing, of course, to the operational lands of the army, which didn't have didn't prove to be a very effective policy. In the first year and a half of the 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 Second World War, it didn't really didn't work out massively well for them. When there were all the, the experienced generals
0: and colonels, well, a lot most of them had been disappeared. Still, it was good for Zhukov; he had less competition. So anyway, it was a big big thing, and then Stalin died, and everyone was terribly sad, and um, didn't quite get the time he wanted to. Uh, end it however he had decided he was going to end it
1: he had a dream and that dream went on fulfilled we'll put it that way now actually we just if we want to bring it up into a more contemporary period, the Labour Party in the United Kingdom uh, it is believed that one of the reasons they did quite so badly at the last general election was the widespread uh, perception in the public that the Labour Party was in parts pretty nastily anti-Semitic
0: yeah, and then there was that report that came out afterwards that said actually the Labour Party in parts was absolutely very anti-Semitic,
1: institutionally Semitic. I think you was right. Yeah, and no. then
0: there were some videos shown, and they they did not put things like "filthy Jews." I think were said again, and which is
1: which is not typical, which is not typical, Gary, because people on the left tend to be very careful in public of never saying "Jew." They always say "Zionist." They never say Judaism, they always say Zionism. It's only when they're in private and they've a few pints taken that the word Jew comes out. And then the word Rothschild comes out pretty quickly
0: afterwards. Yeah, I mean, as, as, you know, some Sinn Féin TDs demonstrated. Um, Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it is perfectly legitimate to criticise the state of Israel. The point, I think, that's made there a lot of the time is that, you know, you get these people liquored up or you get them in private. And suddenly it's it's going a lot further than that. But the interesting thing, I, I think, about the Doctor's Plot before we get back to Gallagher was that the Doctor's Plot was uh, started in, like, 51 or 52. Like, this, this was... Stalin, after the Holocaust, was like, but you know what, though? The Jews! Like, no one knows how it was going to end, but there are respectable mainstream historians who are like, well... It's pretty clear how it was going to end, and it probably involved camps and genocide.
1: As as one as a a journalist, a journalist once said to me, he was he was Russian. He was, both sides, he's Russian. I think three of his four grandparents had died, or either in I do no, know. Maybe had either been exiled or had died in the camps. I but it hadn't been well liked. If Peter Selmer was in it, and he said, Peter once said to me that this, this there was a sense amongst uh, some scholars that uh, when Hitler looked at the, the Holocaust program in Germany, he didn't see it so much as a warning, as a suggestion. Shall we say, sadly, Gary, sadly, racism is not something which we can confine to one corner of the human race, but rather it is a virus which is spread evenly throughout um, about us all. But the idea that you can
0: just say, oh, well, that crowd, they're racist. But we are good and we are pure. That's always the problem when people start saying things like, are you not against the far right? There's always that little bit of what exactly is your definition of far right? My definition of far right and far left would be groups that are willing to use violence to impose political aims. By which accounts you can make some interesting arguments about Sinn Fein at certain parts of its history.
1: Coercion, maybe rather, maybe you could say coercion is a form of violence. But, like,
0: just racist opinions are fair right. Is the reasoning of a child? It's those people who you know, and you see them, and you think they're intelligent, informed people, and they say things like, "You've got the right over there with their debt camps, and you've got the fair left with just their want to have equal health care for all." how are these two things similar? And you sort of go, in application, kind of a lot more death camps though, isn't it?
1: I don't know, something you said that just reminded me of, I was talking to a good friend of mine recently who, was, who would definitely be a gentleman of the left, I would say, emotionally, spiritually, startly, but he's getting a bit peeved, pissed off with the, sort of the, the shape and the direction of a lot of discourse on the left these days. and. It was. A, it's a story that me, I I have. I think I have seen reference to, but I I kept. I haven't actually remembered enough to go and find out what the hell they're talking about. You may be able to tell me here. We're talking about something, and he said something about racism came up, and this is a guy who would have who would have been actively involved in uh, anti uh, racist anti discrimination stuff back in in the day, and he would take it seriously. He said racism. Oh, by I'm. Apparently, Coke is now telling me I I have to be less white. How the fuck do I do that? What is it? Do you know, is aware of this
0: story? Coca, Coca-Cola's? grip reported it. I don't think anyone else in Ireland reported it. That's a very common sentence, actually, the last while. <laughs> ISAG say they want to, uh, you know, they've got to increase uncertainty and fear. grip reported it. No one else reported it. The journal... Only a third of their fact checks actually meet the requirements to be a fact check. Grip reported. No one else reported it. It's just, it's just popping up more and more. Anyway, speaking of ISAG. yes, we just, just one point before we we get onto that, Michael. And yes, we do, we do need to get onto it. I don't care what Connor Gallagher's personal opinions are. I don't care what they are. If he's, I figure he's fairly far on to the left, but it doesn't matter. What actually concerns me is that they go directly into his work and he works for you know, the paper of record where he talks at length about the far right. Conor Gallagher has no ability to distinguish what is not or what is far right and he just doesn't seem terribly good at it. I don't know why he's let do it considering that it's it's the old line. The old, I, I know we've had this conversation before Mike, where I say I think the problem with a lot of media is not that it's ideologically aligned in certain cases. Like, I, it's no, the guardian is left-wing, gripped is right-wing. You know that when you're reading them, they're honest with you and you know where they're coming from. And they can be good or they can be bad, but they're not impartial. They can be objective and fair, but they're not impartial. Newspapers like the Irish Times claim to be impartial and then publish work that isn't. And the problem there is it gives you a certain degree of protection because people assume what you are saying is trustworthy to a degree they wouldn't if, let's say, the Guardian were talking about labour. You'd assume there is a line there. And that is actually my problem with stuff like this, that it is largely uninformed, and where it is informed, it's informed by people in one very particular space. And it's clearly coming from a very particular point. But it's got the overall shield of this is simply impartial. And it's not. Yeah, I I know what you mean. My
1: puzzlement or problem with this, it maybe it is now a naive one. I don't think it would have been. Maybe now, because people who write for newspapers maybe just have a sense of what they're doing, which is different to what a journalist or a reporter would have thought was his job 30 or 40 years ago, or even 20 years ago. I don't, I don't know. But if you're writing about these things, I have I have many friends who are on the left. If you have ever spent any time in a university, or if you've ever worked, you have any friends who live in the world of language or the arts or academia. You will inevitably have friends who are on the left because the left is dominant in the culture, it's dominant in the arts, it's dominant in academia. So, and I have conversations with these people, and I read stuff on the left, so I have an idea what people on the left, and I'm aware of. I know what the, I know what the difference is between British utopian socialism and Marxism and Leninism and social democracy and Christian socialism and so on. i mean, you know, I, I know there's a difference and I know that you can be on the left and not necessarily want to put people into gulags. I wonder at times with younger reporters, like perhaps this young man, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being completely off the mark and unfair. I wonder how many friends he has who are Conservative, because it, what I, I see, there seems to be a terrible incuriosity about some, a lot of this commentary. I can't imagine that this is the commentary of somebody or, or, or people who have actually made an effort to go out and find out what conservatives think as opposed to what people who, neo Nazis or neo fascists, or that there might be a difference between fascism and Nazism, that there might be a difference between being um, a Liberal Tory and a a, a Burkean Tory or Conservative you know that there are distinctions that are important and different you know if you don't have friends that you can talk to that you respect and you think okay that's what you believe so I'll make the distinction that you you don't want to put people in camps and kill them then you know go out and find some people that hold those positions that you know are on the right, centre right whatever it is and ask them in good faith, what is it that you think about this? I heard you say this. That sounds to me like stuff I've heard on stormfront notice boards, for example. Could you explain? Is there a difference? What's, what is the issue? And maybe you go away and think actually they're deluding themselves. The position is basically the same. And then you can write about that and explain why it is. But I don't get the sense that the, a whole lot of that is happening. That there's a and I suppose if you're a journalist, I'm I'm puzzled that you're not more curious. You don't have more of a desire to actually w- whittle around and find out actually what is happening. Rather, you just accept whatever flotsam or jetsam of opinion passes you by on the current of the social media, and you take that up and you put it in your column, and away you go.
0: There is, of course. The fact that there are incentives in journalism to write about particular things and write about them in particular ways, which should not be underestimated. Like any story I write for GRIPT or any story a reporter writes for a newspaper that goes online, they will have a fairly good idea of how that goes. And, you know, how many comments, how many views, how many shares. So certain types of content are incentivized to be produced but anyway on the on ISAG Michael I was looking through the journal the other day because after I did that little piece of work on the journal's fact checks and found that only 33 percent of them meet the standard of fact checks I thought I would go through and see if they had done another fact check and then I could review whether or not it was a fact check on the show you could fact check their fact checking fact check Technically, I'm just fact-checking whether or not it is a fact-check. I'm not fact-checking whether or not it's actually accurate. I'm sorry, it's all snakes eating snakes at this stage. It's, it is. It's 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 an Ouroboros. But one thing I did notice was, since Script released the, the Zero leak thing, the, the leaks from ISAG on things they were saying to politicians that kind of looked bad, or particularly Anthony Staines sending over an email that said we've got to review and internalize a set of rules that um, said increase anxiety, uncertainty, and and doubt. And that was the minutes of a meeting, so I would assume that uh, that was ISAG's decision overall. ISAG have gone totally dark on me anyway. They have not responded to any questions I put to them. They've not acknowledged the stories. They've not denied them. I know reporters at other media institutions also reached out to them and that I believe in most of those cases, they, you know they would ring them, they say they'd ring them back, and they would just hear nothing. None of those stories uh, got past editorial for reasons I will not speculate on. But reporters have written up stories on that, thinking it was a story, agreeing with us that it was a story, and it just didn't get out there. Um, but what I saw today in the journal was uh, there's no fact check, so I couldn't do that. but I did see on Friday, An article had gone up by Professor uh, Samuel McConkie, 10 steps we should take to rid Ireland of COVID for good. Now, the first thing I noticed was the comments had been turned off. And I'm curious if comments were turned off at the start, Michael, or if comments were turned off after certain comments were made. But the interesting thing it does not say anywhere, and I think this is somewhat misleading, is that Samuel McConkie is one of the main members of ISAG. But nowhere... Does it say, on what is effectively an advocacy piece, that he has that affiliation? And this is not the first time members of ISAC have done this and been let do this by media groups. He is an advocate for a group. You should be told that because if you're not told that, you can't
1: properly contextualise the article. And sorry for clarity. For clarity, I mean, because I, I genuinely don't know. Would it be normal practice that you would? It's a bit like sort of declaring an interest, is it? So, say for example, I I wrote an article, as it has happened rarely, but has happened in the Independent about something. At the bottom, I would say Michael Dwyer is is director of the Edmund Burke Institute.
0: You want to inform listeners or readers or whatever they are to be able to understand where this person is coming from, because if you don't do that, then it's it's what I was complaining about with Connor, that you can have personal views. And they're sort of shielded from criticism because people don't have the requisite uh, the requisite information to fully understand where you're coming from. So, like, it would be like if you let's say I got an old member of Finnfal to write about Finnfal and just didn't mention they were a member of Finnfal, or I got them to write about Finnegale and I didn't mention they were a member of Finnfal, and then I put that as an objective or at least unbiased opinion piece. It might still be correct. But you should know going into it that this came from a Finnavala or this came from whoever. Now, what I'm interested in is if this is a jet, if this is a once-off or if this is something ISAG are doing now where they just don't bring ISAG up.
1: They have changed. They have ch- It seems to me there are certain things that have changed. Maybe I imagine you've been paying an awful lot more attention specifically, obviously, to the ISAG story because of all the work you've been doing with it. It seems to me they are far more hesitant now to put numbers on things, far more reluctant to sort of make predictions about case loads or deaths or hospitalizations than they. Sam McConkey back in March of last year famously said that in the worst case scenario we'll be looking at hundred eighty to hundred and twenty thousand deaths, and he said our best the best option has just passed and the media he's what he called I think the median was that there will be could be 20,000 deaths in the country as a result of the, of the of the coronavirus that i don't think they've been doing that kind of thing so much have they i mean I, I think that's a sensible thing i mean if i was an advocacy, if I was advising an advocacy group or a political party i would always say don't get into the business insofar as you can of making predictions unless you know for an absolute certain fact that you're going to do better than the prediction
0: I mean, that's that's a lesson the government could also do in relation to the vaccination.
1: Which uh, of of which more later?
0: Like Jerkoline was on Mac Cooper the other day. Also Isaac. Don't know if he was introduced as Isaac. He was on against uh, a DCU professor. I think an an economist called Morgan Morgan Roche. Jerkoline. We have the Isaac thing where Isaac have said they want to increase uncertainty. Jerkoline has also previously come out and said that we could see sixty thousand deaths, and if the what if our ICU's do a very good job. That could be 40,000. So like 60,000 is not, you know, is not the pessimistic approach. So if someone who said there'd be 60,000 deaths in the country, you know is trying to, or at least was told they should internalize the idea that they should increase anxiety, and you just uh, you just bring them on. I did notice with Matt Cooper, we wrote, uh, John, John McGurk wrote an article on Matt Cooper based on what ISAG were saying about him and how much they liked him. Matt Cooper the next week comes out with an article that's very against zero COVID, and then he just goes right back on to having the ISAG guys on. So now he can go. Well, what do you mean? I'm you know clearly I am unbiased here.
1: I don't think Matt does contrition, but anyway.
0: But uh, actually, it was quite amusing because Colleen kind of came across a bit of a prick, to be honest, because he, he just he just shot down uh, Morgan wrote, just said he was absolutely wrong and that. He had ended, I think, two pandemics, which is interesting because I thought Jair's specialty was in zoology, or at least most of his work is in zoology. So I'm very interested that those were pandemics in the human population. And uh, you're the sort of sarcastic thank you for the epidemiological advice, but you're totally wrong. You said said there'd be 60,000 people dead. Hmm. I don't think you're in a great position to start going, we need a bit of humility in staying within our expertise now.
1: Also, they themselves, I think, have recognized, at least privately, that they need an, that they do need some kind of input from economists in their modeling.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there was the part in their internal documents where one of them says that they shouldn't ask politicians to implement zero COVID because they don't have enough evidence to prove to people outside the group that it wouldn't bankrupt the country. And then there was a lot of, God, wouldn't it be great if we had an economist. Didn't stop them, you know, advocating for as a cure for economic issues, of course.
1: Because
0: mm. why would you do that when you're literally not sure if what you're proposing would bankrupt the country? Ah, oh, potato, potato. You know, details, details very
1: petty, foggy, small, picky, picky. It's you being picky again?
0: Yeah, but no, what, what I found interesting is afterwards, Gabriel Scally, who is a Northern Irish uh, physician and public health specialist, said that Morgan Rowe was just out of his debt. And kind of nasty enough comment. And Morgan Rowe just responded with the uh, the link to the zero, uh, the story I'd put up about increasing fear, doubt, and uncertainty. And just no comments, just that story under Gabriel Scally, Because Gabriel Scally was the person who sent them a copy of the book from which those rules were taken.
1: Oh, the Soloninsky book?
0: Yes, yeah, so they had the books themselves, and then they had written explanatory uh, sentences onto the end of them. I don't know if they writ- if they came from ISAG themselves or if they got them from a third-party source, but um, Gabriel Scali was the person who sent the book over to them. And by the way, like it's, it's as I said, people thought when I, I said that I was complaining about a book that's deeply disliked by the right. My actual point was just, if you want to be a health group, be a health group. At the point you're doing things like that you shouldn't be seen as a health group. You are an advocacy group and you're implementing tactics that a lot of advocacy groups would not agree with themselves. It's not about whether or not the book is liked by left or right. It's about what is appropriate for the position you are being given and whether or not, considering that the vaccination program is the most important public health measure in probably living memory at least, or at least for me. Uh, whether or not people who are saying things about anxiety and doubt and talking about enemies and um, trying to attack people should be allowed comment on it without being questioned as to exactly what they meant. Uh-huh. And there is absolutely no interest in doing that in the Irish media, possibly because they have given these people so great access that to do so now would be deeply embarrassing. Uh, possibly not. I don't know why. You, you may have noticed, Michael, that there's been a, a fall in advertising revenue in newspapers of course yeah the pandemic and uh, the government is holding up a lot of media more than i think most people mentioned hse ads on their own are a big part of a lot of this and so a group of very high level doctors with multiple links into the hse and you know friends in the area might be able to cause a lot of hesitation about covering their activities Considering if those ads were pulled or cut back on, or there was some issue with them, that might uh, generally jeopardise the uh, the media group. Anyway, just a point I wanted to make. Just something in passing, as it were. I mean, it's just an interesting thing that I don't think people realise uh, exactly how much of the media is now being propped up directly by government money,
1: and and maybe more in 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 the near future if Mihan Martins. Wonderful idea, gets play.
0: Uh, Just to close up, Michael, I did want to just mention a a nice little, just a fun little story, an moose bouche of a story, which is also faintly ridiculous. Dr. Seuss books. Yeah,
1: it's, um, it's been a big thing. It's a big thing in the world because Dr. Seuss is huge in the United States. He was not part of my childhood. He was not part, I don't think, much of... The kids, my 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 nephews, and my niece. I think that they may have had the Lorax. Possibly, I don't know. There were it wasn't a huge thing. I have seen the books. Um, it's it's the images in the books most of all, isn't it? That it's the uh, the drawings, and uh, which is really how he gets started. He's he's originally going to go into the world. He's going to be an academic, and his his English girlfriend and wife persuades him that his drawings are so. Excellent. That's actually what he should do for a living. So the drawings are a very large part of, of, of the books and the, the depictions, um, are perceived as, as, as being racist. No, we haven't disagreement about this. Um, I think that the depiction in one of the stories that we saw of, uh, what would you call them? Tribesmen from Africa are old fashioned racist simian figures. Not dissimilar in some ways to the kind of depictions you see in punch of Irish people. It's it's not an unusual trope when you're going to be uh, racist about a group. But it's a bigger question, I suppose, than Dr. Seuss, really, isn't it?
0: Well, the interesting thing I found was not that Dr. Seuss has decided to do this. Well, actually, it's the estate of Dr. Seuss that's decided to do this. I mean there are some things that are weird like the the news that the cat and the hat is under review because of the whole it may be based on the design of minstrels and its only job is to turn up to white children and amuse them when their mother is out that was odd. yeah that that seemed to me that was a stretch
1: i really don't how even if that was no i don't i, I even if, i don't say even if it was true i but leaving that aside how a contemporary child reading that would make alice connection with that how that would appear how that could be read into it even at some kind of deep subconscious level i don't see that i don't that that has gone he also was i forgot to mention a responsible for yurtle the turtle very fine book
0: but there were things like um, that but what i found was really interesting was that was when because uh, i just thought this was kind of funny and then ebay announced it was going to be banning the sale of the book mm. of, the, of the books that had been banned and it um, stopped a lot of the, the auctions and basically told people, you know, you can't do this and don't do it again or it'll be a problem. And that was the point like, okay, that's that's kind of weird because you can legitimately buy a copy of Mein Kampf on eBay.
1: Yeah, that's...
0: Uh, you can. You can buy a Mein
1: Kampf on eBay. Um, does nobody see? No, apparently not. You you get you have you get rid of and take down and ban Doctor Seuss, but Mein Kampf, that's okay. Well, not okay, but yeah, not that I want them not to sell Mein Kampf. Although, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not mad that people should be out there desperately. Actually, no, you should actually t- no, that's not true. If anybody's out there and they're nursing sort of vague right far right leanings, I think they should read Mein Kampf. Because it is the equivalent of being beaten around the head with a wet sock. It's not it written. Oh, it's awful. It's dreadful. And it's, oh, it's a horribly immoral book as well, obviously. And the resentment, seething, nasty, small. You can, I mean, the, the the you know, the, the, the tensions are you not to be turned yourself into a little pseudo-Freudian is reading it is dreadful, but it is a, a, a dreadful, dreadfully badly written
0: book. Just on, on the, the point you were saying there about the, you can feel the resentment through it. In stuff like this, I've noticed this sort of... It seems to be based on a belief that if the public are exposed to this kind of thing, then, you know, it's it's only a matter of time until they're swayed by its powerful rhetoric. Whereas if you actually read Mein Kampf, you just... just like, parts of it are just mental. Yes, just plain
1: awful. It's like another... Lots of books are coming under scrutiny now. Now, there are there are books that, frankly, are not of massive, of any artistic or importance or worth and are, frankly, just rather nasty. I, there are certain children's authors that I grew up with that one in particular I have in mind that I don't know would survive any kind of racial parsing today, and I don't know if it would be a terrible loss if that writer was to disappear. But you have books like well, Huck Finn *Hook Finn has been the has been the source of debate for a long, long time, because the N word is used throughout uh, in, in *Hooker Finn a lot, and there's been a debate: Is *Hook Finn a racist book or is it an anti-racist book? Um, Laura Winkle I, I said you probably saw recently the uh, there was there was a literary prize, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Prize, and her her name was removed from the prize. Because she she famously wrote The the, uh, Little House on the Prairie, uh, which is wonderful. I I read as a kid. I thought they were wonderful books. Far better than that horrible saccharine thing that they put on television, which I still watched. But uh, there are stereotypical depictions of people of colour and Native Americans in it. But, you know, I... My experience. You're talking about how, how people react and the, the worry that this will somehow subliminally or consciously create a new generation of racism. I think that actually what happens is children who read those things today, where they come across those particular instances, and even more widely in in a book written, say, uh, in the period in sort of this, this, the last last third of the nineteenth century, if you're the, the role of women is 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 and is very obviously different to that of today. I think most children will think, God, that's odd, isn't it? Weren't people in the past strange they didn't know that, or that's not very nice. I think that I think the vast majority of children, if, to the extent they will notice, they, they, it's not that it's going to inculcate uh, racism, but rather give them an awareness of historicity, of a sense of people in the past were different. And you know, that would be, a, I think, a very good thing because one of the worrying or slightly odd things that you find in so much of the debate around this, particularly with younger people, is this sense they have that we live in this awful, terrible time, this apocalyptically bad time of horrible patriarchy and racism and violence and oh my without any sense that if you're living in the United States or England or Ireland at this point in the world. You are living at a time and in a place which which is more tolerant, more diverse, more equal and equitable than any other place in the history of humanity. And that's not to say that there are things that we couldn't do better, of course. But, you know, it's not actually this incredibly awful thing that really that you have to blow up the castle and rebuild it because this thing is just so horrible. But rather, no, human we have got better at this and hopefully we will continue to get better at it. And we don't have to destroy everything in the hook because it's so awful. So a little bit of a sense that things were, were different and people talked differently, behaved differently towards each other and had different relationships. I think rather a valuable and positive thing. It's a very low opinion of it as well, isn't it? I wonder again, like I said about you know, knowing conservatives, many of these people know inverted commas. That these professors in universities, I don't mean, even know ordinary people. Aren't they? they seem to have a very low opinion of them, don't they? Bitter, what, what was the phrase in the election? Bitter clingers.
0: Oh, yeah. Bitter clingers.
1: I mean, that was the explanation for, that still is the explanation for most of these people regarding the vote in the United Kingdom for Brexit. That these are all little Englanders, racist, xenophobic little Englanders who desperately want to return to a time. Where the queen was the empress of India and all was right with the world. It's not much of an explanation, particularly when you actually ask people. and It becomes fairly obvious very soon that it's, it's not an explanation at all. What are we going to be left with? There was an interesting essay written in the There's a Journal of Librarians in the United States talking about this. A librarian was talking about the problems. They, you know, there are problems in text, and how do you deal with them? And his his suggestion was that one of the problems is that, particularly in universities, that increasingly the way literature is taught is that the value of a book exists is insofar as it is relevant to me. Insofar as I can identify with the situation or the characters in the book. And if it doesn't, re- if it isn't, re- if, it, if it doesn't in some sense reflect my life, well then it has no relevance and therefore has no value. And that's a radically different way of understanding the, the role of fiction to anything we've ever had since the days of good old Aristotle when he was writing the Poetics.
0: Well, I suppose it depends what you mean when you say reflects your life. Because a lot of these people seem to think that if it's not an exact representation of me, you know, I can't take anything from it. Yeah, well, no, that's,
1: I think that's exactly it. I remember when I was teaching, uh, there was a, 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 a woman teaching with me lovely lady, very nice lady, her politics would be very different to mine. She was a, a Californian, she had been to Berkeley and had done her master's and was doing her doctorate in Berkeley and while she was in there doing her doctorate, she was a, she was a tutor in the English department and she was part of the creative writing program and I remember she, she, she yeah. this is getting on 30 years ago so it's indicative of how these things begin and one of the things she, she was dealing with a, a group of kids, she had a, who were uh, kids who had come into the college who had come in from deprived areas or difficult backgrounds and had had, and were given extra tuition and extra help, uh, in order, because the standard of the public school education they'd been given hadn't been up to Berkeley has a, is a very, very academically demanding place. And the stats store scores of people getting to Berkeley tend to be pretty high. Anyway. She was giving them, a, it was an, an exercise. And one of the, one of the, the, the chaps in the, in the group had come from, uh, is it the Projects in, in L.A.? Ghetto, anyway. And they were asked to write something about, something to do with the world of their experience or something. I can't remember. And he wrote a short, a, a short story, which was basically a piece of science fiction. It was, it was based on a story set on the moon. And it was a piece of science fiction. And it was a kind of a dystopian piece of you know, which is a classic genre, subgenre in science fiction. And she said it was really, really well done. It was obvious that it was a kind of a metaphorical representation of his of his life experience growing up as a child in this in the in the in the ghetto. And she gave him whatever it was. And anyway, her the her marking was occasionally checked by some, some member of the department. And she was told, no, she'd have to bring it down to a C or something. And she said, but why? It's it's, okay, it's a bit rough, it's a bit this, it's a bit that, but I think there's something here, something interesting. She said, no, no, no. His job was to write a description of his life. In other words, I got up this morning, this is what I had for breakfast, this is what was happening on the street. Um, You know, they wanted a story about. Oh, I don't know about it. his father had left them, and his mother had a problem with drugs, or his brother was in prison, or his, he'd had a girlfriend when he was fifteen, and she had an abortion—some kind of ghastly cliche of life for the for, for the poor black American uh, child. And she said, "But this is literature." She said, "No, no, 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 no—that's not what we're about here." And she eventually She she actually left. And she didn't finish her PhD. Ended up initially teaching English. But I thought that was a cheat, as a good progressive left-wing woman thought this was awful because she cherished literature and the point of literature being you create alternative universes but they in a sense that good literature is truer in a sense than fact that great fiction is truer it contains those great stories about human existence about human experience which are universal in some way and but If you don't accept the idea that there is actually a universalisability about the human experience, but rather we are all condemned only to exist in the particular identity that we have been allotted, then you can't have that view of literature. And that, to somebody, an old fogey like me, is kind of sad and depressing. Because how in the name of God is Shakespeare going to be relevant to anybody? But then again, I like Shakespeare, so maybe. I'm in a minority on that one, I don't know.
0: I think we will, we will leave it there, Michael, for the, uh, for the Sunday. We will be back on Wednesday. I'm sure something else hilarious will have been banned or caught fire or fallen over or being built.
1: Mind yourselves and wash your hands. Bye bye. All the best.